0: If you've been with us for a while, you know that we are in a series, Old Testament and Nine People. We are on number eight. Almost done. We are talking about the life of an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. I won't lie, we're going on a wild ride tonight. It's down, it's up, it's near, it's far, so buckle up. Uh, Ladies, if you need to go to the bathroom, go now, uh, because we're not stopping once we get started. I've just alienated every girl in here. I'm sorry. Um. But seriously, before, before we get started, let me, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, we are so thankful to be here tonight. Um, Lord, we, we need your Holy Spirit to come. Would you um, open our eyes, open our ears, and would your word just speak to us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's nothing worse than starting a movie that you've never seen right smack dab in the middle. I don't know if you've ever done that before. You have no idea what's going on. And then you don't really care what's going on because you have no idea what's going on. So rather than start kind of in the middle, let's start right at the beginning. Let's get just a little bit of of context uh, so that we can talk about Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. You see, there used to be one united kingdom, one kingdom called Israel. Uh, That's what David ruled over and his son Solomon. But around the 900 BCs, it split in two. So you have the northern half called, to make it more confusing, Israel, and then you have the southern half that is called Judah. Well, in 722 B.C., a nation called Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They conquered them. They're done. So all that's left now is the southern kingdom of Judah. About 75 years later, after Assyria invaded, this guy named Manasseh comes to power. He's a king of Judah, okay? Uh, And in fact, he was the son of Hezekiah, the guy who we talked about a couple weeks ago. Now, if you were a king of Judah, you were required, you were called to do a few things. Number one, you were called to be humble of heart. You weren't to think that you were better than anyone else. You weren't to think that you were better than the subjects you were serving. Number two, you were called to serve the people. You were called to stand up for the rights of the afflicted, stand up for the poor, stand up for the weak, fight for their rights. Also, you were to read the book of the law all the time. You were to saturate yourself in it. You were to meditate upon it. This was to guide your life. This was how you would know to lead the people. Needless to say, Manasseh didn't get an F. He got a G or an H or whatever. He was terrible. All right, listen to this. He built altars to pagan gods all over Judah. He constructed an altar in the temple of the Lord to Baal. Okay, this is a big no-no anyway, but especially in God's temple. This is where God dwells. And to have another altar right there where God dwells, that's very, very bad. And worst of all, he sacrificed his own son to another god this is a king of judah all right this is seriously messed up stuff but thankfully his grandson comes along his name is josiah in the year 629 bc he's one of the best kings judah ever had he made sweeping reforms he tore down all the bales there's a really cool story he hires some construction workers to rebuild the temple so they're banging away banging away and all of a sudden they crash into a wall it's like national treasure hidden walls weird so they light stick their candles in there and they're let's say it's a book in there so they reach this book out they dust it off <sighs> you know big dust everywhere and they realize this is the book of the law it was behind a concrete wall put there By a king. It's bad. Josiah knew it was bad. The minute he heard, he tore his clothes in sign of repentance and humility. And he led the entire people of Judah into repentance. So at this point, things are now on the upswing. Things are looking good for the people of Israel. In 627, under the reign of Josiah, Jeremiah the prophet was called to the southern kingdom of Judah on the upswing. Now, speaking of calling, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, starts with his call, and this is what This is what happens. God comes to Jeremiah, and he says, hey, here's the deal. I knew you before you were in your mom's womb. You were set apart for me before you were even born. I've got it all worked out. And here's what you're going to do. You are appointed to speak my words, not just to the people of Judah, but to the entire nation's. And Jeremiah understandably craps his pants. Okay? I mean, think about this. What would you do if God came to you? He's going, Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. Hold on. You want me to do what? I got a D in public speaking. I can't speak. Are you insane? But here's what God says He says, Jeremiah, look, I understand you're scared, but don't be afraid. Everything, I promise, everything is going to be okay. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 18. God says, why it's going to be okay. He says, Behold, Jeremiah, I made you this day a fortified city. Think about that illustration. Fortified city, an iron pillar, bronze walls against the whole land, against against the kings of Judah, your own people, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you declares the Lord to deliver you. Did you hear that? His own people that he's called the minister to, to speak to, they're going to be the ones fighting him. They're going to be the ones not listening to him. You know, picture God's promise of deliverance, because that's what he said, he's going to deliver him. Picture God's promise of deliverance as a bridge. Jeremiah is wondering at this moment, will that bridge Hold up under the weight of the 500 ton truck that is my own people? Is it going to hold? You see, Jeremiah at this time, he had no idea what the trucks were going to look like. He knew it would be Judah, but he didn't know what was coming, he didn't know how it was going to manifest itself. Have you ever felt like Jeremiah? You know, finals are coming. You know summer's coming. You know graduation's coming. You know it's going to be hard, but you don't really know. You know family members get sick. You've seen friends. You know it's coming, but you're not sure how it's going to feel. You're wondering if that bridge is going to withhold the weight. Over the course of the book of Jeremiah, it's a fascinating read. It takes a while, but it's worth it. Here's, here's how this truck manifests itself. His family disowns him friends abandon him one of his bosses the king of judah which we'll hear about in a sec burns his life's work in front of the entire office in front of the entire government essentially another one of his bosses eh, you think maybe he will listen to me maybe he won't no i'm not going to i'm going to throw you into a pit of slime and muck and crap and i'm going to leave you in there and you know who's going to save you a eunuch he's going to throw a bedsheet down there pull you out His own people, he's called to serve, they hate him, repeatedly do the exact opposite of what he tells them to do. Again, that question, will God's bridge of deliverance hold up under the weight of what's coming? So I just mentioned all the crap that happens to Jeremiah. Why does it happen? You know, What is he actually saying to the people that's just getting him so riled up? Well, well that's what we're going to look at. So here's what we'll do. We're going to look at Jeremiah's message, part one. Then we're going to pause, look at his experience. What is it like for him to deliver this message? And then we're going to go to Jeremiah, part two, okay? So message, part one. We're going to start in Jeremiah, chapter 13, and the spoiled loincloth. How many of you guys have loincloths? Yeah, that's what I thought. Kyle does. That's not surprising. So in, in verses one to seven of chapter 13, God tells Jeremiah, okay, look, Jeremiah, Go buy a loincloth and tie it around your waist. Now, here's the deal about loincloths. They're the equivalent of what you would wear on the red carpet of the Oscars. This is the best of the best. You've got to look good. You've got to get your nails done, get your hair did, everything looking nice and clean and fresh. And it's meant to show off. It's meant for people to say, How about that? Get on Amazon, try and buy that. That's what the point of it's for. So, here's what God tells Jeremiah to do. Get the loincloth wear it, walk hundreds of miles all the way to a river far away and put it under a rock. That's sensible, of course. So he does it. And then he walks back and then God tells him, hey, Jeremiah, guess what? Go back and get it. Go back and get it. After a while, he had to walk all the way back there. He went to the rock and guess what? Spoiled. Ruined. Disgusting. God explains the point starting in verse 9. Thus says the Lord, even so, I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, they shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. Good for nothing. Why is it good for nothing? Well, for as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord. That they, listen to this, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, a glory. But they would not listen. You know, God made his people to be a loincloth. They were meant to attract the gaze of onlookers. Not for their own sake, but for God's sake. You know, here's how it's supposed to work. The sur- think about where Judah is. It's in the hub of the ancient world. It's a trade route. It's 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 busy. Okay, the surrounding peoples and the nations, they're supposed to look at Israel, at Judah, and think, huh. You know, there's there's something different about about these people. You know, I've got all these other gods, and you know, I gotta do all sorts of things for them all the time, and I feel good sometimes, but then other times I don't. And what well, something's different there? What do they have? I'm gonna go check it out. That's what was it was supposed to be like. Only problem is that God's people were spoiled. You know, they're wearing that Oscar, that dress at the Oscars, or that tux at the Oscars with red wine all over it. It's ruined, good for nothing. God's telling this, this people that they've failed in their calling. Jeremiah is telling them they've failed in their calling. They're evil and stubborn and run after other gods. Let me ask you this question. I should say, let me ask us this question. If, if we were put on trial tomorrow morning, for being Christians, it's now illegal to be a Christian and you're thrown in jail. What would your trial look like? What would our trial look like? What evidence would the prosecution have against us? How long would it take? Would it be quick? Eh, hey, goes to church every couple times a year. Kind of reads the Bible every now and then. Yeah, I don't know. Is that us? Do we stand out? Is it clear there's something different? More importantly, how about this? Would those differences cause other people to worship our God? Would they make people want to inquire, ask questions? Do we heal people? Do we help lift burdens off people's shoulders? Or do people walk away from us going, That guy was a jerk. I just feel a little bit loaded down now. That wasn't good. I don't want that. Is that us? God intends to make his people attractive in every time, in every place, because it makes him attractive. Jeremiah is not popular among the people of Judah because he's telling them what they don't want to hear. Jeremiah is not popular among his bosses either. If you ever had uh, trouble, troubles at work like this, I'd be concerned. Um, we've only got time for one story. I wish we had more. So, Josiah made those positive changes. Things are going great until 609 B.C., When he goes and fights a battle against Egypt and gets killed, gets killed. his son Jehoiakim takes over. Now, at the exact same time, we said, Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. Even further north, there's a new dog in town, big superpower by the name of Babylon. They've come on the scene. They're flexing their muscles. They've defeated Assyria. They're moving south, inching, creeping towards Judah. Judah feels it. They know crap. Babylon is here. Judah's political philosophy boiled down to two options. Submit to Babylon, dig our heels in and give them hell. Those are the two options. Jeremiah is saying submit. Submit to Babylon. Repent. You know why? Because they're God's means of discipline for your stubbornness. Submit. If you do, you'll be spared. If not, if you rebel, trust me, you're going to be destroyed Jeremiah tells his scribe, a guy named Baruch. So, what he tells him, he says, Look, you need to go tell Jehoiakim my message. Because at this time, for some reasons, Jeremiah could not come into the temple. He was banned. So, Baruch takes the scroll. And what's really interesting, this scroll is what we have Jeremiah chapter 1 through 25 in our Bibles. Except this is a big scroll. So, I mean, he's probably putting it on his back. It's heavy. He goes to the temple. He unrolls the scroll and he reads the message, the entirety of 1 to 25, to Jeremiah. Well, there's a guy named Micaiah there. He hears this and he freaks out. He says, oh my gosh, I've got to go tell somebody. So what he does, none of the cabinet members are there, nobody that's in charge. Why would they be there, clearly? No, it's a problem. So he, go, he rounds up all the officials, rounds up all the officials, tells them, okay, look, stay there. I got, you guys got to hear something. He runs to and says, bruce come on come with me, you have to tell these guys what I just heard. So they rush in there. Baruch reads the message again with the officials in a more private chamber. Submit to Babylon or be destroyed. Silence. Everybody's looking down. Everybody knows what this means. They are scared out of their minds. Nobody wants to tell the king what Jeremiah is saying. Verse, uh, verse 16 in chapter 36 summarizes their response. When the officials, when they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. They said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. Okay, quick. Go and hide. You and Jeremiah. Let no one know where you are. That way they, could, they, could, they wouldn't have to lie to Jehoiakim if they said, hey, where's Baruch and Jeremiah? We don't know. So they wouldn't lie. They're scared to death because they know that Jehoiakim, again, king of Judah, he's not happy. Jeremiah is not saying what Jehoiakim wants to hear, and the officials fear the ramifications. So the story continues in verse 20. So the officials, they went into the court to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. So he hears the words. What does he do? Well, 21, then the king Sent Jehudi, poor Jehudi, to get the scroll. He took it from the chamber of Elishema, the secretary. Poor Jehudi. He read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. So picture it. President Jehoiakim called an emergency session of Congress. Every representative, every senator in the house, they're sitting down. He says, my buddy Jehudi has something to read. So everybody's sitting and listening. Verse 23. As Jehudi read three or four columns, picture, this is a big scroll, the king would cut them off with a knife, throw them into the fire pot till the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Think how long that would take. This is probably hours. Poor Jehudi just taking it, sitting there reading it, slice another off, throw it in the fire. This is bad. Verse 24, yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid. Nor did they tear their garments. Remember how Josiah tore his garments when he saw the book of the law? Not Jehoiakim. He listens to every one of Jeremiah's words in the scroll, slice by slice, burns them. It's bad. You can see now why part one of Jeremiah's message was judgment. The king who's called to lead the people into faithfulness has just burned God's word in front of the whole government, in front of the whole cabinet, in front of the whole people. Not only is the king to blame, the entire people have become a spoiled loincloth. And you know what? They could care less about the fact that they're spoiled. You want to talk about a 500-ton truck. I mean, okay, let's just think about this. How would you like to be Jeremiah? Could you do it? I don't know if I could do it. How would you deal with the fact that you've been called to the minister to this very truck that is running over and ruining your life and making your life miserable you see he gave them a chance to repent over and over and over and over and again they said no no screw you flip the bird screw you no they're not doing it his experience is captured in chapter 15 one of the most honest conversations with God in all of scripture starts in verse 10 this is Jeremiah woe me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. It sucks. The Lord said, verse 11, Have I not set you free for their good? Jeremiah, have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble and in the time of distress? Can one break iron? That's Jeremiah. Can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? Jeremiah continues in in verse 15. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me. Please take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake, I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. He seems to take a turn. You know, he's remembering back to his call, back to those good times. When it was good, it was easier. He loved his calling. Can you think of that? Is there a time when you remember? Man, it used to be great. It's hard now. Those good times are gone. Jeremiah is saying it's too hard. Verse 18. Why, God, why is my pain unceasing my wound incurable refusing to be healed will you be to me like a deceitful brook like waters that fail we learn two things from this conversation between God and Jeremiah first is this God can handle brutal honesty God can handle brutal honesty look he's sovereign he has a plan that he knows he knows the end he knows what's going to happen And in Jeremiah's case, he was called before his birth, he knew. And yet, God does not expect that we grin and bear it, that we fake it till we make it, that we act like everything is okay. He wants us to say out loud what we think and feel all the time. Not so that God can know about it, he's not surprised, but more for us. More to be honest about where we're at. He wants us to call a spade a spade. Look, if life sucks, just admit it. You can't hack it. Just tell me. Don't lie about it. I'm not an idiot. I know God can handle brutal honesty. You know where where are you failing to be brutally honest with God? Where are you keeping God at arm's length? You know, are are you getting tired of being a Christian? Have you been doing it your whole life, and you just do it because all your friends do it? But every once in a while, the grass looks greener on the other side. You want to check out the bar scene. You want to see what that relationship with the non Christians like, just to try it, see something new. Are there doubts taking root, intellectual doubts that you're keeping hidden? You're growing bitter at God for something? I love what this author's name is Chris Wright. He said it this way. Honesty is the very first step on the road to healing. For there's no healing without repentance. There's no repentance without honesty, even if it includes anger with God, questioning, and self-pity. Look, bring it out into the light. Talk to God about it. Tell someone about it. Just vent. Find a sounding board, go off. If all of a sudden you realize, oh no, I'm the sounding board, it's okay. Just listen. Just say, wow, I don't know what to do with that, but I'm glad you told me. God can handle our brutal honesty. God responds to Jeremiah's honesty in verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Look, Jeremiah, if you return... I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you. That's Judah. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you to save and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. That bridge is going to hold. It's gonna hold Jeremiah. Here's the second thing we learn from this conversation with God and Jeremiah. Being brutally honest with God doesn't mean we're right. Doesn't mean we're right. God rebukes Jeremiah for what he said, he disciplines him. Jeremiah called God a deceitful brook. You think God's deceitful? Jeremiah might have felt that was like, that's what he was like, but he was wrong. This is why God says, look, Jeremiah, if you repent, admit you're wrong, I'm going to restore you. If you utter what is precious, not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. You see, the content of Jeremiah's self-pitying rant, it's worthless. You know, God has never been nor will ever be deceitful. Now, let me make clear, it's not wrong to feel defeated. It's not wrong to feel depressed. It's not wrong to be Self pitying. I'm very prone to that myself. So, if we're talking, if that's us and we're talking to someone who's hurting, on the one hand, we don't just want to give trite answers. We don't want to say, well, at least, you know, you got your health. No, don't say that. But on the other hand, we don't want to enable people to just remain there. We don't want to be a part of someone who just languishes there over and over and over. There's a time, I don't know when, but there's a time when we have to, just like God does, confront people encourage people to take that next step out of the despair out of the pity we started with part one of Jeremiah's message but of course there's a part one there's, there's obviously part two see part one of the message was judgment but part two is the hope of deliverance here's the deal there's judgment all over the Bible judgment all over the prophets wouldn't be hard to find Yet judgment is never the end of the story. Judgment is never the end of the story. The hope of deliverance is always on the other side of judgment. Let me show you what I mean. All right, stick with me here. Jeremiah's example. He was honest with God. He was rebuked by God. But then you know what? He was recommissioned by God. He was sent right back out there. He was put back in the game. You see, the deliverance of Jeremiah was God's way of showing the exiles in Babylon that he would deliver them. You see, God's intent was that these exiles, who eventually, remember Babylon comes, Jerusalem is destroyed, they get the boot to Babylon. God's intent was that they would hear. They would hear how Jeremiah was delivered. And they would connect the dots that this is what would happen to them too. they go, well, "Wait, wait a minute, I remember Jeremiah. Yeah, he was pretty honest with God and yet God rebuked him but then he was restored. Maybe, maybe that's what God's wanting to do with us. Maybe he wants to deliver us. Even though he rebuked us, maybe he wants to deliver us. That's exactly it. You see, God's people were judged for their sins big time. Seven years in Babylon but there was hope of deliverance because they submitted to Babylon. And while they were there, They heard this promise from Jeremiah, and kind of in the middle of the book, there's a section called the Book of Consolation. This is what it says, chapter 30, verse 7, alas, that day is so great, the day of exile. There is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. You see, the promise of deliverance to these exiles was fulfilled when they returned to the land 70 years later. Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is what recounts this return. You know one of the primary things we have in common with these exiles today? The primary thing is the pattern. And here's what I mean. The pattern of God judging his people so that they return to him, it's alive and well today. I'll show you. Hebrews 12, verse 10. God says this, God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. There's two parts of the message there. Part one, on the one hand, God disciplines us just like he did to Israel. You know, our sinful actions as individuals and as the people of God, they have huge consequences that require judgment and discipline. You know, if we ever think that there's some sin that's just no big deal, at least I don't do this, that's a problem. We We need to rethink how we view sin. I mean, look at what happened to Judah. But on the other hand, that discipline, it's never the end of the story, just like it wasn't the end of the story for Israel. You see, that discipline has a purpose. It's a purpose to bring us back to God, to share in His holiness. Why? Why should we share in His holiness? What does that prove? Well, that empowers us to live in line with what God is doing in the world. God wants to bless the world. God wants to bless the bless Mizzou through a people who are set apart. And to be called holy. You know, a couple months ago, I went to this class at Covenant Seminary. And the the guy teaching, and he had a great illustration. Uh, He said, the Christian life is kind of like this. God's just kind of walking with us, with you. And all of a sudden, sometimes he just gives you a swift kick in the pants. Just, come on, let's go. Nope, not that way. This way. Come on, let's go. It's a perfect embodiment. The pattern is is the same. Jeremiah, brutally honest with God. Good. (laughs) Come on, let's go. The same is true with us. The kick does not negate the armor on the shoulder. It's both. Judgment is never the end of the story. God disciplines us in love, so we'll return to him. But here's what we do not have in common with the exiles. We don't have the perspective in common. Let me show you what I mean. Picture an iceberg. I hope one shows up on the screen. Uh, (laughs) Nice. Uh, You know, our understanding of just how massive this iceberg is, is completely dependent upon where we're standing and where we're looking. You know, if we're standing on the surface of the iceberg, we know, okay, it's an iceberg. There's more beneath us But we don't fully understand just how much there is. We don't get how big we have, how big this iceberg is. The people of God in Jeremiah's time, the exiles, they're standing on the surface of the iceberg. They have seen and heard what appears to them to be a mountainous promise of deliverance, and it really is. They were delivered back to the land, but it was fulfilled when they returned to their home after the exile. But there's something more going on here. Jeremiah 31, sorry, Jeremiah 30, verse 21, it says this, again, in the book of Consolation. Judah's prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out of their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. What? What does that even mean? Now, an Israelite on the surface of the ice, they know someone's coming. That's all they know. This prince. Okay, great. Prince. Woo-hoo. What does that even mean? They know somebody's coming, but the picture's hazy. There's more questions than answers. But today, today, we're not standing on the surface of the iceberg. We've zoomed out. We have the benefit of seeing above and below the water. We know that God's promise of deliverance went, went much deeper than just a return to the land. Instead, we've got a clearer picture of two things. What we need deliverance from the most, our sins, and how that deliverance is going to be accomplished. The Prince of Judah, Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus went to the cross at Calvary, when he died and when he rose, he secured once for all the ultimate deliverance that Jeremiah and the exiles could scarcely imagine. They could only dream of it. They kind of knew, but they had no idea. That perspective, that changes everything. Let me close with three implications of God's ultimate deliverance of his people in Jesus. Number one, Christ's deliverance brings us personal freedom. You know, we're not enslaved to our sins any longer because the death and resurrection that means that there's hope God is actually alive and working and restoring two steps forward one step back two steps forward one step back never fast but always in a slow direction there's hope second Christ's deliverance cultivates this sense of community optimism the fact that we have been delivered from our sins as a people to live out God's calling on our lives, it means there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can stop that. Nothing. Doesn't matter who the president is, who the governor is, who the mayor is, doesn't matter who the chancellor of Mizzou is, doesn't matter who your coach is, who your RA on your dorm floor is, who your pledge mom or dad is. It doesn't matter who's on the throne of our lives. They cannot bottle up God's promises. God's going to use his people as a vehicle of blessing to the world. Game over. It's Pandora's box, except awesome. I don't know how else to say it. Pandora's box is open. The world, the flesh, the devil can't stop it. God in Christ is blessing the entire world. Here's what we got to figure out Are we going to get on board? Are we playing our part? If, if we're in the people, if we would claim to be a Christian, number one, be encouraged. This is the reality. This is what Scripture tells us. But second, are we doing our job? Are we playing our part? Are we just settling? Are we just settling for smaller stories, more pointless stories, less satisfying stories, sports, relationships? Those are good. They're fine. But in relation to the bigger story, it's nothing. If you're not... In the people of God. If you're here, maybe you're thinking about it, you're not sure, maybe you say, No, I'm out, I'm out. Consider this your invite. This is what you could be a part of. God promises deliverance, relief from freedom, relief from guilt and shame and our sin. You know, when that happens, you're brought into part of something you can only dream about. It's not just you, it's a team, it's a people, not just today, but in the past and in the future. Finally, Christ's deliverance points us to the finish line. Just a quick little verse uh, in, in the beginning of Galatians. Paul is greeting the church in Galatia, and he says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The age we live in is presently, right now it's evil. The Bible says so. The church feels it. You know, there's more Christians killed and persecuted for their faith today than in any other time in history. The world at large feels this. As of this morning, the death toll of the earthquake in Nepal passed 4,000. Now it's so sad. It's not, it's not hard to see. This world's broken. Something's wrong. Everybody knows something's not right. Yet, God in Christ is in the process of preparing the entire world world for his people. The Apostle John in Revelation 21, it might be up on the screen, if it's not, that's fine, just listen. Chapter 21, verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them As their God, an earth completely cleansed of sin, ready to be lived in forever. A people completely free of sin, cleansed of sin, ready to live there, to dwell there forever. God with open arms, ready to welcome his people and live with them forever. This is the story we were made for. This is the story that will bear the load of any truck, past, present, future. As the worship team comes up, let me pray. Oh God, we are so thankful for the life of the prophet Jeremiah. He was put through the ringer. He lived a very, very difficult life and yet you delivered him. We're so thankful for that because now we know We know the promise of deliverance. Lord God, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would move us as individuals and in your people to confess, to be honest with you, and yet to be open to being disciplined, to being rebuked by you, that we may return to you. I don't know what it is, but help us to more and more be okay with that, and Lord, help us to be an attractive people. Would others outside the people look at us and say, what's going on there? I want, I want that. I'm curious. God, we're so thankful that, God, that you in Christ are, are helping us and that you have secured that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.